ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. On the show today, you'll hear from the boss of a $1 billion agricultural fund who feels cattle prices are undervalued at the moment and he's expecting better times ahead. There's no global indicator that supports our beef prices being suppressed at the levels that they are at this point in time. So I would be highly surprised if there's not a positive movement here over the next two to six months. Also today before 1.30, you'll get to meet the Territory's NRM Ranger of the Year. Oh my goodness, it is actually amazing and I am really nervous, but it is really, um, you know, I'm proud of the way I've been trying my best for the last 12 years. And a cattle company in northern Australia has been accused of negligence, which led to hundreds of cattle dying in yards. I'll tell you all about this on today's Country Hour. Big show, stick around. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. We're on the television via Channel 25, and g'day there if you're tuning in via the podcast. Rio Tinto is pulling apart the old Gove Alumina refinery in northeast Arnhem Land and says it's the largest demolition job in Australia's history. For 40 years, that refinery was used to process local bauxite, but now it's been torn down. And 142,000 tonnes of scrap metal will be shipped out of Gove to Asia. To learn more about this, Dan Fitzgerald spoke to Rio Tinto's Paul Redwood, who says the demolition project is big and it's complicated. Look, this was um, a, a huge uh, a huge site in terms of uh, alumina re- re- refining. If you compare it to a working refinery, very, very different in, in terms of the degradation that, that had happened over, over the years. We're, we're on a coastal uh, coastal environment here. So, um, you know, the salt has, has reacted with a lot of the steel. Um, it's, it's cold, as in the plant isn't running, um, and that used to give it protection. So, look, there, there are numerous tanks. We've got power stations. Uh, we We've got liquor purification plants. We've got substations. So in terms of the amount of um, equipment and material within a very um, small uh, footprint, it's immense up here. And so what is involved in the big job of demolishing that refinery? So the demolishing, uh, or demolishing side of it started uh, probably three to four uh, years back before we uh, we commenced up here in terms of the study. So many many hours of review of of this site, um, working with our stakeholders, um, local community, and of of course the traditional owners up here, in terms of what the legacy is. Effectively, what is the end result that we leave um, um, up at this this site? This uh, site was curtailed in 2014. And effectively, it was turned off um, without a huge amount of decontamination. That re- that means that we have products in tanks, we we have vessels that have ver- various different types of chemicals, acids, those type of things. So a lot of that has remained within the um, the footprint. It has it has been contained and it's been bunded. There's been no no issues in terms of environmental I- impact, but. It just creates another um, aspect of what we need to do. So it's we're not just about demolition here; we're about decontamination. So getting out the um, uh, the waste material, 
uh, that is part of the process of um, making um, book, turning bauxite into alumina and other products that are on this site, such as um, as asbestos, etc. And with this demolition comes a lot of scrap metal. How do you go about sorting all that out and what happens to it? So indeed, a huge amount of scrap. Uh, our estimates at this stage is around 142,000 tonne, uh, which effectively is around three Sydney Harbour bridges for, uh, for anyone who's trying to put that into perspective. Um, so it, there's a lot that needs to happen. So first we need to bring that material down um, uh, to the ground. So we, as I said, we have tanks, we have steel structures. Uh, we use the large machines. Uh, in, term, in terms of the excavators with large large shears to bring that down. It's processed. It's taken into various um, uh, stop piles. Uh, so we have the heavy-duty plate, which is our premium. We have light gauge, which goes through a box shear. Um, and then we have sort of the medium, uh, medium to light gauge material. So we stockpile all of that. At, at the moment, uh, we have probably about 30,000 tonnes sitting um, either processed or unprocessed. And we have another vessel uh, coming into society uh, in about four days um, where we will export 150, uh, sorry, 15,000 tonne um, overseas. That will be our second uh, uh, ship. Most of the steel is clean. Uh, when I say it's clean, it's dirty. It's, it's got dust residue on it, but it's accepted by the mills. Uh, we have to strip any um, product off of, off of that, as in if there is any asbestos. We have um, licensed uh, demolition experts up here where, where we remove the um, uh, any asbestos, traces of asbestos from the steel, and then we test, and it gets a clearance, and then it goes onto the stockpile. Likewise, if there's any product in um, or scale that's sat in those pipes, uh, we clean that out uh, as we can't. Um, it, um, send that off to the recyclers, but it's a massive it's a massive process. As you said, there's another ship coming in soon, which will take away another fifteen thousand tons of scrap metal. Where is all this going to, and and what is the market like for scrap metal at the moment? So we, we use our sub subcontractor um, and, and their agent basically to find us um, uh, to go out and, and get expressions of interest for for the for the steel. It, it's not really allocated anywhere. Um, majority of the interest has come from from Asia. That that, that is probably the main hub for for uh, steel recycling um, at at the moment. So our first vessel that uh, that left us in October went to Malaysia, um, and the second vessel that is coming in uh, in a few days' time is. Uh, the final destination is going to be in Indonesia. It's not only scrap metal that needs to be processed there at the refinery, there's a, also a huge amount of concrete. Tell us about uh, the concrete there and, and what will happen to it. Yeah, a huge amount of concrete. As you can appreciate, these these uh, huge structures have to sit on uh, quite substantial uh, foundations. Where we sit here uh, on the uh, the peninsula, effectively, it, it's sand. So uh, during the uh, uh, the construction side of it, a huge amount of concrete was poured. So we have approximately uh, three hundred thousand uh, ton of concrete uh, which we are removing. So our um, agreement with the traditional owners is we will remove concrete to a, a meter below current grade so effectively anything that sits 
above the current uh, um, uh, foot level of, of the of the site, we will remove down to approximately a metre. That includes the Rio bar that comes within that uh, that concrete. So the moment we're removing it, um, we we are stockpiling it, um, and we have a, a brand new crusher that is coming uh, to site in uh, January, where we will crush this material. We're actually working with our the the local um, uh, traditional owners um, uh, for that um, part of part of the project. So they will be supplying the um, uh, the crusher, and we will actually be um, free issuing that material to the traditional um, owners up here as well for use in infrastructure projects uh, going forward. So, you know, um, so us be being used, able to can be used for like things like road base. Exactly right. Road base, etc. Well, one thing I will point out: we do test the concrete um, before we um, before we um, send batches out because you know we have some contaminants on on this site. So we make sure that uh, the concrete that we send to them uh, meets the the, the necessary uh, regulations and and is within the requirements and that there is no contaminants. But they will use that for road base. Um, they have a number of infrastructure projects up here now and going forward in the future. And as you can imagine, that that will save them a huge amount of money in terms of sourcing that. Uh, concrete and stockpiling that concrete. So this demolition of the refinery site, how long is it expected to take and um, what do you expect the site to look like when it's all finished? So I've been up here now for just over two years. <clears throat> Our contractor has been with, with us probably about 18 months. Um, we have around, uh, sort of around to sort of the end of uh, 2026, uh, maybe creeping into early 2027. And it's not just about the um, the demolition. The demolition is a big part of the job. Then we go into rehab. So the, the, the area has to be f- um, fully rehabbed. Um, we've already done some trials on the, um, the soils just to make sure that um, – uh, over, over time that we uh, we bring the contaminant levels down on uh, some of the contaminant levels down that have been uh, uh, identified um, and then we go into rehab so uh, we have a sea collection program on uh, working at the moment again we're working with the traditional owners and we have a signed uh, uh, memorandum of understanding between uh, Rio Tinto and the traditionals about what this site will look like. What did they want it to look like? So we have industrial areas and we have uh, recreational areas, uh, different landforms. Uh, we have to allow for drainage, etc. We're bringing in native plants, rocks, that type of thing. So there's been a lot of work from our our um, ESP team and our studies team working with the owners about what do they want up here, and we continue that discussion. I've just come from a meeting with the um, the CEO of the the traditional owner group up here, just to talk around that and uh, just to understand if there if uh, you know there is any further requirements for for native um, uh, fauna, etc. Et so there is a plan of what this um, this site will look like, and as you can appreciate, even when we leave here, there's probably five to ten to fifteen years of that that growth to happen before this site actually shows its premium and what it will look like um, for for those uh, you know traditional owners and and the uh, the residents of Nullumboy and what, what they can look forward to up here. That's Paul Redwood, who is from Rio Tinto's Gove Refinery Demolition Project, speaking there to Dan Fitzgerald. And if you jump onto the NT Country Hour website right now, you can see some pictures of this project and some great videos of the old refinery getting pulled apart and shipped off to Asia. Type in NT Country Hour and there it is. <laughs> You are tuned into the Country Hour this Thursday lunchtime. A cattle company over in the Kimberley has been accused of negligence, which led to hundreds of cattle dying in yards. 
It's also been accused of dumping abattoir waste out in the paddock. I'll take you to the Kimberley next and we'll learn more about this. Uh, first, here's a tune from Fanny Lumsden. From her album Hey Dawn, which won an aria the other day and it's up for a gold guitar next year in Tamworth. That's Fanny Lumsden. You are tuned into the Country Hour. Let's make our way to the Kimberley now where the Yeda Pastoral Company has been accused of negligence which led to hundreds of cattle dying in yards and also dumping abattoir waste against environmental licence regulations. Alice Marshall has been looking into these allegations against Yeda, which not only owns that abattoir to the north of Broome, but also owns and runs Yeda and Mount Jalianga stations. Uh, Alice, can you tell us what you've found in this investigation? So everything I found in this story is actually off the back of another story that we spoke about just under a month ago. That story was, of course, the ABC's revelation that Yeda Pastoral Company owed more than $5 million to local family-run businesses right across the north of Australia. That was for works done for Yeda and for cattle supplied to Yeda and to the Kimberley Meat Company. Now, everything I know about this story comes from speaking to people for that one. And in those conversations, people said, you should look into a bit further what they called negligence that allowed what are two prongs of this story that we're here to talk about today. The first is that more than 400 head of cattle died in a set of Yeda Pastoral Company holding yards. And the second is that the Department of Environment is actually investigating Yeda Pastoral Company for the dumping of tonnes and tonnes of abattoir waste in violation of their environmental regulations. So let's start with the cattle deaths then. What do we know? So what we know is that early dry season last year, Yeda Pastoral Company and through the Kimberley Meat Company brought in more than 2,000 head of scrub bulls to the Kimberley Meat Company holding yards. Only a small percentage of these were actually processed by the abattoir and the rest were moved into a set of Yeda Pastoral Company yards. And it's important to note here that, of course, when we're talking about scrub bulls or Mickey bulls, feral cattle, uncastrated, and, and they're wild animals. So it is broadly recognised by industry that because of their wild nature, you need to process these scrub bulls quickly. The stress and the associated injuries of yarding them for days and weeks on end can be fatal to them. And of course, that's that's what happened or what didn't happen is they weren't processed quickly and they were yarded for months. So one person speaking on condition of anonymity told me that people who witnessed these bulls dying in Yeda yards described it as demoralising. They said, I never thought that something like that could really happen inside this industry. The source continued to say they were told that it was unacceptable to hold the bulls for so long and that something needed to be done about it but it seemed to fall on deaf ears. Now, another anonymous source with knowledge of Yeda's internal operations said it would have been impossible to process the 2,000 head of bulls within a week anyway. They said whoever approved the decision to bring in thousands at once clearly wasn't a cattleman, and they went on to say that they were held in the yards for months and that they were dying daily. Now, I want to continue on this aspect that is noting that they were scrub bulls and looking at at what causes they could have been dying from. One person 
very familiar with these animals is Dave Morell, who's a large animal vet based oh, yeah. in He's Broome. been a vet for decades, yep, yep. 40 years, mm. over 40 years. <laughs> he gave me some information around why these bulls might have been dying. Oh, you want to get them out of those yards as quick as you can because these are, like I say, wild animals. They're bulls, they're full of testosterone and they start fighting each other and they're trying to work out their pecking order and if they're clean-skinned bulls, they'll have sharpened horns that haven't been tipped and they're horning each other. They end up with wounds that can go gangrenous and jamming them all together in that stressful situation in the yard, the continuous stress leads to secondary diseases like pneumonia and they get an excess of sort of lactic acid and they can get muscle weakness that they, they can't get up. Uh, so there's several physiological things that can happen when they're all jammed in the yard together, all of which are very deleterious to the bulls. So that's Broome Large Animal Veterinarian Dave Morell speaking there, Matt. Now, all of these allegations against Yida, has the company actually spoken out about this? Yes, yeah, so I did put a number of questions to Yida with these, this information to them. And in a statement, the company said that they hold animal welfare at the core of their values. They said in late 2022, an oversupply of cattle was recognised and immediate measures were put in place to address matters. The statement continued that over the past 12 months under new management, the company has made significant changes to its operations and has been working closely with industry and industry participants to ensure best practice and compliance with the new operating structure. Now, I also put questions to the WA's Department of Primary Industries and regional development and they said that they had not received any reports of cattle deaths on Yeda Pastoral Company in 2022. So does Yeda deny that hundreds of cattle have died in yards or just Can't. the response didn't go into that? The response didn't go mm, into okay. that. And what about the environmental part of this story and the abattoir waste? What did you find about this? Yeah so in this side of the story the ABC obtained some some drone footage that showed abattoir waste from the KMC being dumped in piles on Yeda Station. It's what industry calls dead pits, I suppose, although I am I don't really like saying the word pits because it is very much dumped on the flat and you can go and look at the footage if you'd like. You can search ABC Rural and you can see that footage. The Piles include the skulls, the hooves, skeletons, rib cages of cattle that have all been processed by the Colourstone Abattoir, the KMC Abattoir, and they're openly accessible by livestock sitting in an improperly fenced holding paddock. One source said that cattle have access to those piles. They said there's also runoff into pits that fill with water that cattle also have access to. Now, in their successful 2016 application for Department of, Envi Department of Environmental Regulation approval, Yeda Pastoral Company wrote that the plant is designed to process all products of the slaughtered animal, which are packed into 20 or 40 foot containers and loaded onto trucks for delivery off-site. There's no reference in that environmental approval to any on-site disposal of skeletal remains in the Kimberley Meat Company's environmental licence. Now, I reached out to the Department of Water and Environmental Regulation that gave this licence and they said in a statement to the ABC 
that they've initiated an investigation into this matter to determine whether activities are compliant or non-compliant. I also put some questions about this dumping of abattoir waste to the Yeda Pastoral Company, to which they said that they were committed to continuous improvement and strove for best practice. They said the environmental approvals in place are subject to regular audits by the regulator, which includes the disposal of waste. Now, of course, at ABC Rural, we'll continue to follow the Department of Environment's investigation into these piles of waste. Thanks for keeping us up to date, Alice. And as you said, people can read more about this via the ABC Rural website. Hi, I'm Tim Burrow, and I represent the sand, rock and gravel extractors of the Northern Territory, and you're listening to The Country Hour. Gary Edwards is the Managing Director of AAM Investment Group, which has got operations in nearly every state of Australia across a variety of commodities. And here in the Territory, it's involved in cattle and cropping on places like Merrifield, Limbunya, Scott Creek and Lejeune Station. Now, you'd think Gary would have enough on his plate running a billion-dollar ag investment fund, but he's also put up his hand to be the Deputy Chair of Cattle Australia. Speaking to Warwick Long, he says Australian cattle prices at the moment are extremely undervalued. My personal opinion is that there's been a chronic overreaction to the Bureau announcing El Nino because since they've announced it, it's done nothing but sporadically rain. And the, the challenge is that there was no other global indicators that were requiring our market to, you know, a sell-off that required our market to be suppressed. In fact, it's quite the opposite. So everyone is always impacted. Um, but I'd like to think that we're taking a longer-term view and I'd like to encourage everyone to take a longer-term view because uh, that's how we get more sustainable uh, pricing you know, for producers right across the country. Do you see through the eyes of producers and how they reacted to an El Nino forecast given, I suppose, what has happened to them in previous droughts? Can you see why it happened the way it did rather than you know, w- whether you, you worry if it was an overreaction or not? Well, I think firstly, it comes down to the fact that uh, even the Bureau themselves, I think, potentially go earlier and stronger in those announcements than they might have done in the past, which may potentially force people or encourage people to make more significant and dramatic decisions earlier than what they would make. So when you combine those two situations, and there's obviously reasons why the department's caught a lot of flack of being able to not forecast when it was going to rain for two or three years, which is a pretty difficult situation, and and obviously people are taking a conservative situation about how they're managing their grass and and what their cattle herds are. Ultimately, there's a lot of information out there and the challenge is for everyone to patiently distill and work through that situation. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's anyone's right whether they buy or sell and there's just as many people had opportunities that were buying when other people were selling. So it's a dynamic industry and it's a really, you know, interesting... That we're confronted with so much information and data and how we process that is a challenge for everyone. So you sound quite confident that the cycle in, in even beef pricing will turn soon? There's no global indicator that supports our beef prices being suppressed at the levels that they are at this point in time. So I would be highly surprised if there's not a positive movement here over the next uh, two to six months that's more reflective of the uh, weather conditions that we're experiencing 
and also the demand for our products globally. We're seeing the American market has exceptionally high prices and their supply volume into exports is declining rapidly. In fact, the importation of beef into the United States is dramatically increasing. And Australia is the third largest contributor to that. So there's many, many things that should have a positive indication over the next six months as to where prices would hopefully head. You also recently invested in chicken properties in in Queensland as well. Is it important for a business like yours to to broaden what protein you're, you're producing? And is that easy to do if your knowledge is in cattle, but you move to something like chicken? We're very fortunate as a business to have some specialist people that focus uh, in the poultry production sector and I guess the reason why we've diversified our investments um, from beef being the largest, we're also very large producers of lamb, we produce about 75,000 prime lambs a year. Uh, And you know now about uh, 23 or 24 million chickens a year. Um, but chicken in the domestic situation where we've seen high beef prices, the consumption rates of chicken increase dramatically. Uh, and as a company, we need to be able to manage our risks. around. We're, we're along in, if you like, animal protein consumption by humans. And you know, we look to have an exposure as a business across multiple uh, species and protein. Certainly our largest exposure remains in beef cattle and we think there's a great opportunity into the future because our investment strategy is really around 10-year timeframes and every year we look and and reassess where we want to go and where we we expect that to be. But, uh, you know, to be truly diversified, which is what our business aims to be, we have to have an exposure across different commodities. Given we've we've talked to you about how you feel about cattle prices, and I imagine another big part of your business is how you feel about agricultural land prices, right? Note you've got farms still for sale around forms in New South Wales, but it would be a big part of of your business is identifying where you can make money in terms of investing in in farmland. It's come through a boom period over the last few years. How are you feeling about the the value of Australian ag land right now? Well, look... uh as a company, we look again in a long-term cycles. You know, what's the ten or twenty-year trend? You can afford to have patience. Well, well, I'd like to think that, but openly, I guess what we're looking at is what land prices are like around the world. You know, we're in a broadly inflationary environment, and food is one of the number one correlations to inflation. If you're in the food market, traditionally, you're benefiting from inflation, and. You know, whilst they might pause for a while in the long term, we do expect prices to increase um, because as a developed world, our agricultural land prices are still relatively low. Um, you know, there, there is a bit of a difference, though, and I guess what we might consider productive land that, you know, is three or four hours away from urban areas um, and the pricing of that is very different to land that's priced closer to the major urban locations because there's so much land that's used for agriculture traditionally that is now owned by people that live in our major urban areas and, you know, they travel to them and maybe work from home now or, you know, they might visit on their weekends. The, the access to, to land and the people that are managing and maintaining that has changed dramatically over the last 20 or 30 years. So... It's very difficult when you're correlating land prices. You know, my, my reference is always the larger and, I guess, more remote locations. Uh, it's difficult to have more stability when you've got a lifestyle influence on your land pricing. That's Gary Edwards, who's the Managing Director and Chief Executive of AAM, speaking there to Warwick Long about cattle prices, about land prices and about chicken.
Just looking at top-end radars this afternoon, there's a few storms getting about. Lejeune Station would be getting wet this afternoon. There's some large storms on the WANT borders we go to air this afternoon. Looks like plenty of rain out at Groot Island. If it's raining at your place this afternoon, let the rest of us know. We love the rain reports. Uh, 0487991057 is our text. I got a picture earlier on from Haggis out near Noonamar. He says he got 47 millimetres. Bloody beautiful, says Haggis. Complete with a thumbs-up emoji, a beer emoji, and a buffalo emoji. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, We'll have a chat to the Weather Bureau in five minutes' time. I'll see you then. Hello. Timmy Jawa Brodawanga from Yirkala. You're listening to the Country Hours. Take me home, country road. (laughs) To the place I belong. I met Timmy yesterday at the Territory Natural Resource Management Conference. (laughs) It was an absolute pleasure. The Territory NRM Awards were held last night in Darwin before 1.30 on the Country Hour. You'll get to meet some of the winners, including the Ranger of the Year. Oh my goodness, it is actually amazing and I am really nervous, but it is really, um, you know, I'm proud of the way I've been trying my best for the last 12 years. Uh, This is all coming up in the second half of the country hour. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Rebecca Patrick is there this afternoon. How are you, Beck? I'm good, thank you, Matt. We just uh, had one of our guests on who mentioned the Weather Bureau. Uh, Gary Edwards felt cattle producers had perhaps looked at the El Nino forecast too closely. This is what he said. My personal opinion is that there's been a chronic overreaction to the Bureau announcing El Nino because since they've announced it, it's done nothing but sporadically rain. What do you reckon, Beck? To put Um, you on the spot? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it has been definitely a delayed start to the wet season, so that's probably something that people were taking into account. Um, but, yeah, I think certainly we're still below average across the NT for most locations right. in terms of where we would be at this time of year. Yeah. Perhaps Gary was ref- referring to some of the big rain that's now been seen in the eastern states. Um, yeah, interesting that, um, because we had some people having a look at previous El Ninos and, you know... Um, even though you might get a, a below average rainfall overall for the season, you could still have, you know, a few Some weeks large of, events. Of, yeah. yeah, much more rainfall. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a tricky one to plan for, I imagine. It's raining right now in a few parts of the Northern Territory, which is lovely. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, so we've got um, quite a few storms, just probably mostly south of the top end at the moment. Um, so uh, just west of Timber Creek, um, heading towards the WA border, there's quite a few storms going through that um, and down the, the western border area. Um, Groot Island currently um, getting some rainfall. They're up to almost 45 millimetres since 9am. Yeah, so doing some um, decent rainfall. We've also had some storms or some showers more like around Darwin this morning. Um, so, yeah, a bit of rainfall here and there. Uh, Noonamar with 44 millimetres um, to 9am. And then um, they haven't had any rainfall this morning. It was more coastal this morning. 
So what can people expect into this afternoon, this evening and overnight when it comes to rain? Yeah, so it should be a good proportion of the Territory getting some rainfall today. Um, Maybe not a lot of rainfall in the southern areas. Um, But, yeah, certainly across the top end, the storms will be fairly slow moving, which means that they should drop a reasonable amount where they go over. Um, And so we are seeing those storms uh, extending over the Arnhem District as well, which um, we haven't seen quite so much of recent days. Mm. Um, So seeing some cooling of the air over there as well. Um, There is a risk of severe thunderstorms today over the Carpentaria District and northern parts of the Barclay District with potential for some damaging wind gusts. So, um, yeah, do keep an eye out for any thunderstorm air um, Severe thunderstorm warnings right. if you're in those areas. And the potential maybe for some big rain? Yeah, some some reasonable rain. I wouldn't be saying severe thunderstorm worthy rain at this stage, but, okay. you know, it could be so similar to what we've seen the last 24 hours. We saw, um, you know, a few locations getting 20 to 50 millimetres. So um, some places across the top end um, could see numbers like that. Um, and that's likely to continue through the week as well, through ne- through the weekend, mm. um, with the expectation that the storms will be, um, yeah, fairly slow moving um, for the next several days. It's good. November is finishing strong with all yes. this talk of rain. It's good. Yeah, not a good start um, to November, but certainly has Coming picked up home speed. Strong. Anything else we need to be aware of before you go? No, I think I uh, think that's pretty much covered the main things. Have a lovely afternoon. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That is uh, Rebecca Patrick there at the Weather Bureau, just repeating some of those rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock this morning. Noonamar Airstrip, 44. Howard River, 23. The Adelaide River Post Office, 29. Mills in the Gage and the MacArthur River Airstrip recorded 51 millimetres. If it's raining at your place this afternoon, make sure you let us know. 0487 1057. Hello, uh, my name is Irmala Kumana, and I'm one of the Hidalka Rangers from Northern Arnhem Land, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Now, we all know about the hard work and the diverse range of work that Indigenous Rangers do in the Northern Territory, but what about coordinating all of that work? Well, one session at the Territory NRM conference this week was to put a focus on the role of ranger coordinators and to come up with some solutions on how to make that job more manageable, more sustainable. Jamie Page from the Bachelor Institute says being a ranger coordinator is a big job. Yeah, so because I work with so many different groups, I see the challenges, I guess, that people face and it's just a massive job being a ranger coordinator. You've got to deal with day-to-day getting people to work getting things happening doing the work getting the cars going but you've also got family and community pressure for things you've got government bodies you've got funding you've got reporting you've got admin you've got all sorts of scientists and biosecurity and everybody thinking rangers can do everything for them and they can but it's just it's a huge job and Coordinators are often the ones who carry that load of trying to coordinate all those things. So we've sort of, this is the second year, we've been running these workshops just to get ranger coordinators together to show them that we recognise the challenges and get them to sort of come up with ideas on how they 
share ideas about how they deal with those challenges. What were some of the ideas that have come um, across in the last two years? I think, I guess, a bit of a sidetrack, but what we started off today was why do you love your job, what do you love about your job? And what came out was we love the people, we love the people, we love sharing the knowledge, we love bringing up the young people, getting them to learn. So it's really, you know, you think, oh, I love being a ranger because I like being out in this beautiful, amazing country, which also came out, but a lot of it is it's people. They're all people people, I guess, so it's how do you support that and let them do those things they really enjoy and help pass that knowledge on to the younger people and bring them up so some of the ideas for that sort of I guess delegation trying to split those roles I just said there's just so many roles of rangers so they came up with we want you know I think CLC was a really good example of how they split it up they have training managers they have mentors because a lot of the other side of ranger coordinators you're quite a counsellor in a lot of ways you're dealing with people you know when they need deal with banks they need to deal with hospitals doctors fines all sorts of stuff you're doing all this other stuff so CLC actually have mentors who deal with that so and I think one thing came out today that's not the periphery that's the centre of the job that's the middle bit is those relationships and those keeping the ranges so because they have a lot of pressures and things and dealing with all that so that they can come to work and just do their job and get out in the country and do what they do and look after this huge area for us. So those are some solutions from within organisations. Do you think there needs to be any sort of external supports given to make sure that ranger programs and ranger coordinators coordinators can operate in the most efficient and best way possible? I think, yeah, there is external support and funding and all those things, but I guess it, it's got to come from them. So I guess where I really try and run these workshops, it's really I'm just facilitating, I'm getting them to say, what do you need? Because... Like in many areas, there's all sorts of people thinking they know what other people need, but it's really got to come from them. What do they need and how do they support? So then we've got something to take back. And often there's answers within, you know, this ranger group's doing good at this, this one's doing good at that, so they can actually share ideas. How do you do that? So a lot of it is just that sharing, and then they can put out, well, we need a training manager, we need a mentor, we need a admin support, we need this, we need that. So I guess to help... When governments are looking at funding and increasing funding, it's not just we need more rangers, we actually need all this support as well, so make sure with ranger funding comes support funding as well. And how big of a deal is this? How significant of an issue is it? Is a, a ranger coordinator burning out because it is too much of a workload? Yeah, it's very common. You can look at the job ads, you'll see ranger coordinator ads being <laughs> you know, advertised quite often and... It is hard, and I guess the other thing is then there's a whole lot of other pressures from local people becoming coordinators and stepping into that role, and there was a few comments today about if you're an outsider coming in, you have all this humbug, but then you know you go home and you can turn off or you can go away, but if you live there and that's your community, well, you can never sort of turn off for it, so that turns off, you know, a lot of local people are reluctant to step up into being coordinators because they don't want the humbug and the things, so we need to support them do that role, job sharing, all sorts of opportunities. But I think starting with all we're really trying to say is we recognise the problem and you're not alone because I sort of, like I said, I work with a lot of ranger groups, so I see all these things, but these ranger groups, they're in very isolated places often, so it's good for them. And I got a few comments today, oh, well, I'm not the only one dealing with this. So I think just to, this whole conference is always great for that, just the networking and the 
to make them feel that there's other people going through similar issues and having and you know they can have their own ways of strategies and stuff. That's Jamie Page from the Bachelor Institute speaking to Victoria Ellis. And on the topic of rangers, Ricky Archer, a former ranger from North Queensland who's also worked with ranger groups in Arnhem Land, has created history becoming the first Indigenous man to lead conservation efforts at some of Australia's most prized national parks. The federal government has announced Ricky as the new director of national parks. So he'll take the reins on Commonwealth parks across the nation, including Kakadu and Uluru, Katajuda here in the Northern Territory. And we wish Ricky all the best in that big, important job. Right across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. The Territory Natural Resource Management Awards were held last night. Well done to all of the winners, including Solidi Bhutangaliawoy from the Crocodile Island Rangers who took out the Ranger of the Year Award. She also features in one of our Country Hour promos. Hello, my name is Salaudi Botongoleoi, and I am from Crocodile Island Rangers, one of the women coordinators. And you are listening to the Country Hour. Yeah, so Solidi is now the NT's Ranger of the Year 2023. She caught up with Victoria Ellis last night after winning that award. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Salahdi Butongoleoi. I work with Crocodile Island Rangers in Milangimbi. Um, it's been a privilege for me to work along with the coordinators that I have. It's been actually a privilege for them to support me around being I'm gathering Women Rangers group. Oh my goodness, it is actually amazing and I am really nervous, but it is um, really, um, you know, I'm proud of the way I've been trying my best for the last 12 years. And so I did and supporting my Ranger group, which is good, and other supporters and um, other um, Ranger groups, I mean, my coordinators and other acting coordinator they're like um supporting me around with the um the work that i do mentoring and supervising the team what did you do to win this award um so what i did is that um i have stepped up a little bit because our, our manager dropped down a little bit so we had to um go back and forth um so my manager is like two weeks there two weeks here and then myself and as a senior ranger working there as a woman seven years right it's been privileged for me to work alongside with my other colleagues to continue the work without our manager and because I have been working for seven years myself without a coordinator, I've been acting as a coordinator. So that's what um, brought me into this TNRM Awards um, finalist. And you've got a lot of fans. They've been making a lot of support for you, a lot of noise in the audience. Julie, what does it mean for you to have that support from everybody from Crocodile Island? Oh, my God. It's actually, it's just touching my heart. Everyone, you know, supporting me in the um, work that I do and um, thanking all the other sponsors and, you know, trainers and whoever coming out and working with us in remote communities. It is actually a privilege. Did I hear you say on stage that you were the only female ranger at the moment? Um, In the past seven years, 
Yeah, for the la- past seven years working, since I started work, for the seven years straight, I've worked with the men by myself, and then I thought uh, I should get women's business, you know, women's ranger program going, and that's where I ended up. So in the last two years, I got another two women joined my group, and because they stopped and didn't come to work, I didn't, you know, step back a little bit, but I still had the support from the people that I was mentioning earlier and from the traditional owners and from my colleagues as well. Why was it important to you to have the women rangers as well? Um, Because looking at other... um, women rangers um, working on their country and for myself working alongside with the men for long term I just wanted to have women to to start up a work where we can feel comfortable in our own workspaces and so that us women are um, not left alone and we've like when we go out on camps or work on country it just reminds me that um, we women has to be felt as we are home as well, not just men going out there looking at sacred sites. We women want to be strong and helping the men for our future because we're the ones that will be looking after our people. Yeah. There's a lot of young people here today who'll be looking up to you. What's your message to them? Uh, my message to you young women and any woman that are trying your best in your workplace or if you're having difficulties or facing hard pathways, I encourage you to step up and continue and, um, yeah, just continue the work that you're doing and hopefully we'll get to the point where we want to be. That is Solo D. Boi, who last night was named the Territory NRM Ranger of the Year. Well done to Solo D. Now, the Farmers and Fishers Sustainability Award, it was taken out by Jamie and Lisa Newen from Harvest Hill Orchard. They grow some beautiful dragon fruit out there. Here's a little bit of Lisa's speech last night. Thank you to um, Territory NRM. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't have a speech prepared, but when we started farming, we were doing conventional and we thought, you know, there should be a different way to do farming, a more natural way and sustainable way. And so we started our own research and doing our own trials and we have come up with a more sustainable way to do farming. And hence, you know, we do by char. We make our own fertilizers out of um, unsellable fruit and we put it back into the soil and yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Lisa Nguyen from Harvest Hill Orchard in Darwin's rural area. Well done also to Mimmel Land Management and the local Bullman School in central Arnhem Land, which took out the Next Generation Award. Joe Laverty spoke with some of the students and elders involved in that program. Hello, my name is April. With the men rangers, I do some fencing, um, burning making trap for feral animals and everything like that. And with the old um, learning on country mob, I do some checking out waters and everything like that. And yeah, it's been a, my favorite things on learning on country. Me, my learning on country, yeah. What do you, how old are you? Um, 14. Now. What do you want to do when you grow up? Um, I feel like I would just want to work on ranger because it makes me feel like I want to work right now yes yeah. yeah. what's the biggest feral animal you caught we caught up we got um bush cat um feral cats wild 
feral pigs. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Your face was beaming when those kids were talking on stage today. What's your name? Annette Miller. Tell me what you do with the program. I'm one of the elders that teaches learning on country out there, and I do a lot of planning with the kids. And we take them out and do a lot of... I do a lot of teaching as elders in the community, and we maintain our language and try and teach culture with the kids. What's the first lesson you try and teach? The first lesson I try and teach is um, going out in the bush and identify different types of foods and, and animals and then talk about the bush, the trees, plants and the animals. That is Annette Miller, who is involved in Mimmel's Learning on Country program with the Bullman School. And Annette, last night at the Territory NRM Awards, took out the Lifetime Achievement Award for all the work that she is doing in central Arnhem Land. So well done to Annette. Well done also to Jasmine Jan from Territory Wildlife Park, who took out the Environment and Conservation in NRM Award. The Indigenous NRM Award went to Tiwi Resources and Tiwi Rangers. And well done to the Parat Primary School and its Eco Warriors, who last night won the People's Choice Award. The Territory NRM Conference, it's wrapping up today in Darwin. There's a number of workshops taking place this afternoon. It's been a big three days. A few hundred people have gone to that event and they've come from some of the most remote parts of the Northern Territory. We broadcast the Country Hour live from that conference yesterday. If you missed that program, if you missed some of those wonderful stories, you can catch it via our podcast. You just type in NT Country Hour wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Enjoy the rest of your Thursday afternoon. Good luck trying to get a bit of rain and keep it rural.